This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. So, hi there, and welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Dr. Francesca Champ from Liverpool John Moores University. In the first part of our conversation, our main focus was on understanding identity development and experiences of talented athletes, and we discussed Fran's ethnographic work, where she spent three seasons in a professional football club as an applied sports psychology practitioner and a researcher. And so today we will focus on her experiences as an applied sports psychology practitioner and some of the challenges that could be related to gender and being at the early phase of of a sports psychology practitioner career and some questions about professional identity as well that are certainly going to be interesting as well and so welcome back Fran thanks for finding the time and as we start exploring these topics um Maybe just tell us a little bit about your own professional aspirations. So has it been a dream for you to work as an applied sports psychology practitioner? Oh, good question. Um, yes, but I guess that only came about... Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about my history and I guess where this ambition came from. So as um, I transitioned to university, I was really unsure about what I wanted to do so at the time that I moved to university I was actually playing um in the top league for Manchester City women um and I'd been there for three or four years at that time so I kind of went to university when we're talking about the identity in the last section I think it's probably I fall within to that exactly in that remit of somebody who had a really strong and perhaps exclusive identity And the only reason that I went to university was to study sport because I felt like I had no alternative. So at that moment in time, the women's game wasn't where it is now um, and there was no professional contract. So it was almost, I am going to have to get a job at some point. What else am I interested in? And sport was the only thing. So I did sports science. um, And as I was progressing through my first and second year, I would say my career within women's football probably became a little bit more turbulent and it was at that point alongside studying sports science that sports psychology start emerged as something that was really interesting to me and I guess I then adopted the mindset of if I can't be an athlete if I can't dedicate myself to becoming a full-time professional because there wasn't the opportunity to do so what's the next best thing And I guess the next best thing for me was to operate in supporting those players 
or supporting other individuals to become the best that they could be. And so it was sports psychology. And therefore, I think given the hands-on nature that I'm very practical, very sporty and very comfortable being in a sports environment, being embedded in that environment as a practitioner is something that, yeah, I guess at that stage I started to dream of and it became my ambition and my sole focus to develop my skill set and develop my abilities to be able to operate and support other individuals within that capacity. Mm. And when you started doing your uh, research work and your applied work, so you did this wonderful three-year ethnography as an applied sports psychology uh, practitioner and a researcher at the same time. And you mentioned in the first part that when you entered this environment, that you were pretty much the only woman around there in addition yeah. to the cook as well <laughs> and so I mean you were certainly an insider to football being a player yourself and being in, immersed in that environment for such a long time but when you entered the men's game in a different role so you're a young woman working in sports psychology how how were you received um It was incredibly challenging. And I think it hit me harder because not only did I feel like I had the contextual knowledge of football because of my own experiences and my own background, but I come from a footballing family too. So my father, my cousin, my brother, all of which progressed through the footballing system and two of them were successful in making it pro. So I was like, I've been around these guys all of my life. I know what they're like. I know their characteristics. I know their personality. I can handle them. I can handle that environment. And I guess then when I went in, it was an absolute shock for me. I believe that I believe that I was prepared and I believe that I'd be able to overcome those challenges without too much difficulty really. But I think it was very very different. So the first time that I met anybody from the club was during the interview and that was actually a really pleasant experience because this individual was very much into sports psychology, demonstrated the need to support players, um, identified the potential value of me as an individual coming into the environment, increasing diversity. And then on my first day, I kind of got in there. Um, everybody looked at me as though I was an alien. And I don't know whether that was is how they look at everybody that's new within the environment Or whether that yeah. was just me being a female and being young and being different. And within probably half an hour, um, I was sitting in the physio room having a conversation. And I was approached by a senior member of staff who said that one of the first team players had recently been through a divorce, um, had problems with addictive behaviours, and could I sort him out? And I was almost then at that point, like, okay... The first thing that this demonstrates to me is a lack of experience and familiarity with the discipline and mm -hmm. a number of um, perhaps misconceptions around what sports psychology is, what my role is and what I'm capable of. Um, so that was the first thing that was really challenging. And I had to then, I faced the tension, the battle of saying, I don't feel comfortable doing that in that I'm employed to work with the academy. This is a senior player secondly mm -hmm. that's not within my experience so I, I I don't feel able to support an individual through that at the moment but also on your first day you don't want to let down a really influential senior figure within the club 
And so by saying no to him, what would be the impact of that on my relationship with him? So that mm-hmm. was my that was my first experience. And I guess then from there, there was I was not necessarily well received in they were quite friendly to me generally apart from one individual who would make everybody a cup of tea rather than me and it took me about three months to be made a cup of tea by this one particular individual (laughs) (laughs) and and actually I got on really really well with the person at the end so I I think it was just for them it was a huge shock to have me positioned with the environment working directly with players as a female I think being young was the second thing that they had to overcome. So many of the staff, they were experienced, middle-aged males who had been in the game for a long, long time. And the discipline Mm. was something that was also alien to them. So, for example, the first team captain asked me if I was able to read his palm. He genuinely did not know what sports psychology was and wondered if I'd know whether he'd be fit at the weekend. And I thought when he first said it, I thought that he was mocking me and it turned out that he wasn't. He was being deadly serious. He just did not understand what the discipline was around. And I think those misconceptions, they really shaped my early experiences. So, for example, I wrote in a paper around doing a session for parents on what sports psychology is um, and my role. And I was questioned on my gender as to whether I would fit in. I was questioned about my age, whether I was mature enough to support their Mm. child and I think that came through they associated maturity with experience and expertise and for me I found that really challenging because I it was almost if I was 10 years older that question wouldn't have been asked if I was a Mm -hmm. female I if I was wasn't a female I wouldn't have had questions around are you tough enough to work with the male players it wouldn't necessarily it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, it's your personal qualities and your characteristics. And I think I was judged in a particular way because of my mm-hmm. gender. And I think then as well, so I delivered a similar session to the coaches and the staff. And I was asked by one staff, or I was told by one staff member, you don't keep anything confidential in this environment. And the reason you don't keep anything confidential is because as coach, my manager, de- my job depends on results. And therefore I need to pick the strongest 11 each week. So for me, it was almost, how am I going to navigate my way through all of these misconceptions, through all of these challenges, and do my job, do what I'm here for, because I've been faced with, or I've had a million barriers put up before I can even get to that point. My effectiveness Mm. has already been judged without me delivering anything. So yeah, I think, but what is really important to say is that the ways in which I was received with regards to who I am was that was by coaches and that was by parents. That wasn't the case with players at all. And I think whilst players were a little bit confused to begin with, and they did ask lots of questions around sports psychology, I think they were intrigued. I think they were interested. And I think they wanted to engage. So very much when I work with players on a one-to-one basis or one way in which I got to know them was I got picked up from the train station the same way as a lot of the under 18s did and we all got it was called the scholars bus and it was almost a 20-30 minute bus ride to the training ground from the train station together and it had gone from being all of the lads on the bus having the banter to actually now me just positioned within the middle of them and them trying to figure out how to behave in front of me and 
I think over time, probably over a few weeks of being there most days with them, I started to integrate in those conversations. They started to find their feet, still behave in a more of an authentic and more of a natural way. And we had some of the conversations that allowed me to kind of set my foot on who I was within that environment, what my role was, and attain their buy-in. And so I found that I was almost very well received on a one-to-one and a group basis with the players, which was contrasting to the staff and the parents. Yeah, so certainly like depends a lot also on who you are working with. And and so you talked about in some ways there's a triple disadvantage. So <laughs> being a woman in that environment, then it's being a young person and at the earliest part of the career. And then it's certainly about the discipline as, as well. So sports psychology has been also like, you know, thought about, you know, it's only for people who have some big problems or and and so forth but so we can maybe talk about all of those three but I would maybe like to start with the gender element of it so sports psychology I think as a discipline we are not very good at addressing gender as much as we probably should be doing so based on previous work on applied sports psychology and gender what what do we know about women's experiences in these environments and is being a woman is it the barrier or can it also have some advantages for, for your work? Yeah, sure. So I know um, there's previous research from Emily Roper and that's a lot of that is around um, the barriers that be- females face when entering and operating in fo- uh, sport environments as a sports psychologist. And I think mm-hmm. the first thing is there's barriers around even attaining those roles in that often roles are given to males even if they have less experience because they're often Mm -hmm. deemed a better fit within the sport environment and I think that's exaggerated when it comes to male sports as well because there's question marks surrounding like for females so for example for me how will you work with the boys how will you conduct yourself what's your level of professionalism is there anything that I have to raise question marks around with your own conduct or perhaps with the conduct of the athletes that you work with How do we, what's the dynamic with you working with male athletes in a room on your own, especially if they're younger children, so if they're 16 or below? So I think the entrance is the first barrier. Secondly, then when we, or attaining a role, secondly, then when we do attain the role, the entrance is the second barrier. I think because we're females, um, people do pursue, which I think this can be taken in one of two ways. So the first way is negative, and that might be sports psychology is deemed as a female discipline generally because it's a caring profession, and Mm. so it's perhaps more feminine. And I think that's negative because when we're then employing females to operate in that role, that conflicts with the ideal player or the ideal athlete in many coaches' views. So, for example, she's being brought in, she's going to be too soft, she'll make the players too soft, she'll molly coddle coddle them it's all about caring when actually I want a sports psychologist to come in and make them more resilient make them tougher Mm. and I think in that sense you would almost I think the barrier that we face is that sporting environments believe that a male would be better positioned to do that because mental toughness is generally conceptualized as a male characteristic or a male trait so I think that's one real barrier we face with regards to how we practice But on the other hand, that might actually be beneficial. And I think for me, it worked in a positive way. 
to line with some of what Mark Nesty said um, around sports psychology being seen as a caring profession. So a female might be somebody that players are more likely to open up to. They see you as more of a supportive, a caring and non-judgmental figure. And so it works as a positive. And I actually did have that experience. So I found that being a female was a, a positive for the players because they opened up very quickly to me. But I felt that it was a barrier with the staff because the staff perceived me as somebody that was just going to make soft players even softer. And so I didn't have those traits to make them tougher, to make them more resilient. I think, so I do think being a woman brings its own challenges. And for me, I was really, really conscious of that, particularly after the first session that I had with the parents and the coaches. So I, I very much, every time I was going into the club, I thought about what I was wearing. I thought about where I was sitting, who I was speaking to, what my body language was like, how I wore my hair. And in the first instance, I think what I tried to do was almost portray myself as more masculine. So I tried to mask over or hide my feminine traits in that I tie my hair up and wear a baggy tracksuit because I thought that made me fit in. And on reflection, I'm not sure that was the best approach. But I think for neophyte practitioners and for females, we face a number of challenges that we have to think about, that we have to reflect on that males don't face, that males don't even have to consider. They can get up in the morning, they can go into the club in their tracksuit, they don't have to think about where they sit, they don't have to think about how much time they're spending with one particular individual simply because of their gender or simply because of their sex. So we, as women, mm. we, we face a range of unique challenges around who we are, how we construct ourselves and how we are perceived or the identities that other people prescribe us. Um, and I found that incredibly challenging to begin with. Yeah, you started already talking about the certain ways that you would maybe try to appear less feminine. So I thought maybe just from, from a theory perspective and, and in your article, you are writing about um, using a gender performativity approach. So maybe we yeah. can talk just a few words about what that means and how that can be seen in, in, in practice and, and in your research. Yeah, sure. So for me, um, I've kind of adopted gender performativity as a term from Judith Butler, um, which kind of says that irrespective of whether we're born as male or female, that shouldn't determine our behaviour. Actually, we learn to behave in particular ways because of society, because of the socio-cultural context in which we exist. And I think that when I describe the way that I tried to portray myself as being wearing the baggy tracksuit, um, that's almost me trying to fit into that particular environment by engaging in something that's traditionally more seen as being more male. And for example, as well, so I would, if I was offended or hurt or like struggled a little bit with a situation, I would very much mask over those feelings. I would never have gone into the club and somebody said, how are you? And me be like, I'm not too great today. Actually, I was offended by this yesterday or I found this experience really challenging. Mm. It would be fine. So I would put on a brave face. I would try and demonstrate that I was psychologically tough. But mm. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case just for me as a practitioner. I would argue that a number of individuals within that environment were also doing the same. So as we mentioned in part one, not all players within that environment actually are these masculine individuals 
who are really strong, who are um, able to mask over physical and emotional pain. But they were, I think they were trying to portray that identity exactly the same with the staff. Some of the staff weren't these authoritarian dominant figures that they portrayed themselves to be. So I think within that environment, what you had was a number of individuals, male and female, that were behaving in ways to try and fit within the dominant culture in the club. So we were performing an identity as opposed to um, necessarily be as opposed to being who we are or as opposed to being male or female. We were performing what we believed was most appropriate in that environment. And what was most appropriate in that environment were more traditionally masculine characteristics. And yeah, so hopefully that gives you kind of a little bit of understanding as to how that wasn't the case initially for me with regards to understanding other people's behaviours. I was I was very blinkered and I was really quite narrow and I thought that everybody in that environment was masculine. They were intimidating me purposefully. They were engaging in these behaviours because that's who they were. And it was only really on reflection over a significant period of time that I started to see things differently and I started to understand people perhaps at a deeper level to say this individual may well have engaged in those behaviours because of their own challenges, because of the own conflicts, their own conflicts with the, their identity and who they have to be to survive within the environment. And it was then that I think I started to empathise a little bit more and understand that whilst this journey was really difficult for me, there were also males that existed within that environment whose journey was equally challenging because they didn't just align with the dominant cultural values and beliefs of the organisation. So whilst I think as females we have it really difficult, probably definitely more difficult than males, I don't think that males within that environment also have a really easy journey. There are some that have tensions, conflicts and battles that they have to face and overcome too. Mm. I think it's really an important aspect that we talked earlier in, in the first part about young players and all the insecurities they are facing and they can be deselected so easily or the injury can be really like the fatal that they never <laughs> come back to play after that. But I think we always have to remember that everybody has an insecure place. The coaches can be very easily replaced as well and for yeah. them to that they they have to keep winning to keep their jobs as well so yeah it's not just the players and and the coaches are making their life difficult but the coaches have a difficult life trying to stay uh, in their jo own job as well so everybody's uh, in that same yeah situation yeah absolutely and I think that's something that I wasn't aware of going in and I think it's because I was so hyper focused on me and my experiences that I didn't open myself up to the struggles that managers and other staff within the environment were facing. And it's only over longitudinal reflection that I've started to see that. And actually now I, I view coaches and I view support staff in a very different way. And I think I'm more empathetic. I only wish that I could have been like that as earlier on, as opposed to tarnishing everybody with this label. Mm -hmm. Yeah generally also what comes through in literature about early career practitioners that it's very easy to be very self-conscious about oh what are others thinking am I doing the right thing should I do something else and so forth so maybe you are not paying attention and and really just like you say trying to understand things from those other people's perspectives because you are just really 
so concerned about yourself and how you are doing in that environment yes absolutely yes and I think that's that's probably as well a function of the short-term nature of contracts that staff are housed on the significant challenges that staff face and the results-oriented nature of the environment so I knew that my contract although it is a practitioner researcher contract my my status or my position within the organization was very much dependent on how successful the academy were in progressing players through to the first team and the success of the first team each season so I was very unstable and everybody else was very unstable unstable so they were in a constant state of uncertainty and I think that does make us have that narrow lens on ourselves and perhaps a little bit of ignorance towards others around us in the environment so I again I think that's a function of the organizational culture within professional football yeah and you shared a lot about these early experiences and a little bit like a shock (laughs) (laughs) landing to this new new environment but you worked there for three years is actually quite a long time so maybe just continue the story a little bit about how things evolved and were you discouraged about this early start and 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 so on yeah yeah sure um I think probably after six months, I was totally beaten up by the whole situation. Um, not with players at all. I was. It was really difficult because I was developing strong and meaningful relationships with players. And I was working really well at a group level and at a one-to-one level with players. And I felt like I was really valued by them. But I was facing these continual and daily challenges with the staff around how I was portrayed, the opportunities that I, I was given because of sports psychology as a discipline. Every day was a battle to get that contact with the players. And it was, I felt quite dejected and rejected from the environment. And when I mentioned earlier around things being a tick box exercise, at this point, I was absolutely 100% sure that I was only employed to satisfy the EPPP guidelines and regulations. So to maintain that category two status and that was something that really challenged me. Um, my identity as a practitioner, because how does this conflict with who I want to be and who I see myself as, as a practitioner, but also my professional development, in it felt like a little bit like a stunted growth. In I'd gone there with a blank canvas, which was challenging in itself, but was hugely positive because it provided me with the opportunity to grow and shape myself and shape how I operated but that was then within the constraints of you've not got time to see players tonight because they have their physical training you can't see players now because they have their lunch they have an education session this afternoon so you can't see a player then so it was it was always a battle to prove that the discipline was worthy of being included within the program and also at a broader level that I was worthy of having players time so not necessarily just sports psychology delivery, but for me as a practitioner, that I had the ability, the personal qualities and the characteristics to make a difference or to shape their journey positively in some way. So I think that was a real tension for a while. And then I started to find a happy medium. So the sports science and medicine team, um, there were a couple of changes and then we developed a stable team and that stable team stayed together for around 18 months. And it was a really modern forward thinking team, 
where all of us were, were either working towards a PhD, um, a couple of them were working part-time towards a master's, but we, we were all fresh from, yes, you might call it the uni system or academia, and we all wanted to positively introduce what we'd learned and shape the journeys of players using, I guess, more modern methods. So we saw the value of sports science beyond just coaching. So I found a little niche and I found a little fit and a home within the sports science and medicine team. And I developed a really strong connection with the education officer as well. So although my conflict with coaches still remain to some extent I developed a good relationship with the 18s coach and the 18s assistant they very much bought into what I was doing I worked with performance analysis to observe um, feedback from games with regards to emotional control or certain aspects of behavior and I go through these clips with the coaches around particular players I'd offer support they engaged in psychological profiling I think things started to significantly settle down and that was probably a year in until about two to two and a half years in. So I did find a happy medium and I felt that I was developing but then we faced a significant period of turbulence. So at that time the first team manager and the first team assistant lost their jobs, Um, the under 18 manager, the under 18 assistant manager changed, the head of sports science and medicine left, so did the other sports scientists, so did the two physiotherapists. So kind of at that moment in time, again, it was like the next culture shock for me or it was the next shock in that every single person that I developed an alliance with and those that I worked closely with just left the organisation. In probably across a period of two to three months, there was just this mass exit and I felt like, okay, now where do I fit? And I had to go back to the drawing board and I found that last six months probably more difficult than the first six months in the organization because I felt like all of the hard work that I'd done all of the relationships that I developed all of the progress that I'd made individuals had come back come into the organization and they had the views that these stakeholders had two years ago so I'd just taken a huge step back and I felt like almost at that time I didn't have the time and the energy to invest anymore to work as I had previously because I knew my time was coming to an end shortly. I knew I just had to get to the end of the season. And I think reflecting now, I almost just disengaged and I felt like, okay, I work well with the players. I'm going to keep that relationship with the players. The staff that I work really well with have now exited the environment. I don't have the resources. I don't have the energy to battle again. So I'm just going to keep my head down. And I almost distance myself and my identity as being a part of the organisation, and just accepted I'm happy to feel like an outsider. I'm happy not to fit in. I'm almost okay, and I'm comfortable with that, which I wasn't previously. I so very much wanted to be a part of that working team, and I so very much wanted to fit within the organisation. And it got to the point there where I did fit. Everything changed again, and I was like, I'm okay now. I don't feel the need to align myself with the behaviours and with the attitudes of the organisation. I'm more comfortable in who I am. I'm a little bit more experienced now. Perhaps also, like, I have broader, I broadened my identity. I have other sources of meaning from a professional perspective. And so I'm okay if I do face those challenges. I'll overcome them. I'm not going to fight against them. And I think that's how I exited the organisation, feeling like, 
the relationship I had with the players was really strong and I still communicate with some of them now um, and I still have a really strong relationship with some of them now but my relationship with the staff, the new staff that came in, I guess I didn't invest time and energy in getting to know them, in getting to change their perceptions on sports psychology and I think unfortunately that's probably then continued to now in that the club have had one or two sports psychologists embedded within the environment since that have only been very short-term appointments and the revolving door of sports science and medicine team has continued in that I'd say the average duration that a sports science um, or medicine team member within that organisation is now is one season. So almost I feel a little bit of regret that I didn't try harder for the legacy of the programme and the legacy of the discipline within that club because players really needed it but I didn't have the time and energy yet I didn't have anything left to give if that makes sense and I mean after that after completing your PhD you had full-time lecturing positions in in three different universities so did you continue doing some applied work on the side or are you planning to do that in the future um yeah so I did um so really interestingly for a while um I wasn't embedded in professional football. So I I actually went and worked with senior male players on a consultancy basis. So I developed um, a network of clients that I worked with very much distant from the professional football club and from the professional football organization. And I found that it almost gave me the break that I needed. Um, and it's only really more recently that I've been almost wanting to get back in and embed myself back within that sporting environment, that professional football environment. And so in November, so yeah, end of October, beginning of November, I was appointed as first team performance psychologist for Liverpool women. And that's been really interesting in that I've gone back to being embedded. At least, So it's one day a week that I'm embedded within the organisation and I'm probably supporting athletes a good, three to four days outside of that one day. So I feel like although I'm only in one day, it's quite a lot of engagement with the athletes, with the staff, feeling like part of that club environment again, part of that football culture. But what's different is that this time it's senior. So that adds different challenges and a different perspective. And it's female athletes as opposed to male. And I've actually really, I don't know whether it's because it's a kind of break from academia, um, but I really, really enjoy that hybrid role. I really enjoy being positioned within that environment. It has its own unique organisational and cultural challenges with regards to sports psychology delivery, mm. but I found it a lot more, I found staff and players significantly more receptive to me and my role immediately, and I haven't had to face any of those battles which has just been yeah it's been amazing really right yeah so I mean you've shared about your your journey and moving from from being a player yourself to being a practitioner applied practitioner and a researcher as well and all those challenges you had at the early part of your practitioner journey so maybe just reflect a little bit since our topic is on meaning so what what are the types of meaning that that you get from working as a practitioner applied sports psychology practitioner and why why is it meaningful work for you despite all these <laughs> challenges that might be there 
I think the meaning that I take from it is making a positive difference to somebody's life, to somebody's experience. And that sometimes conflicts with the results-driven nature of working at first team level. But for me, seeing somebody in a better place than they were two, three weeks ago or even six months ago is hugely rewarding. And because of my own journey as a professional yeah, as a professional performer, I think I know what I went through and knowing that I had no support network there and trying to balance and manage what it means to be in that environment, what it means to be a human with all then the added pressures that they have of being an athlete, knowing I, yeah, I take meaning from knowing that I'm somebody there that they can confide in that's hopefully empathetic and that certainly doesn't judge them that's there to listen to them and that will always be there for them I think that's where I draw my meaning having a making a positive difference to their their life I guess Mm. yeah and as, as you mentioned and what you talk about in your writing as well that in in this kind of environment there aren't so many people who really are there for them as people and not just in terms of like you need to perform next week or yeah you're in a different role compared to coaches for example yeah it's it's really been a very interesting discussion I think from from the first part to come back to that discussion we talked about the concern for these young people who are not going to stay in the talent pathway or who who will then become deselected and you talked about working towards for them to have some kind of experience in football that they can cherish and they can find some value from that and maybe develop some life skills that they can take with them and and that would be part of what you want to achieve as a practitioner as well so I'm just curious do you ever hear about the stories of these young people who because after they leave the academy, then they are kind of gone. So do you have you been able to stay in contact with uh, any of them, some of them, after they were deselected? And, and do you know how their stories continued from there? Yeah, so I guess that's a really interesting question. And I think I've been really fortunate in that, yes, I do with some of the athletes, and the fact that they've even wanted to stay in touch has meant so... So when you say about meaning, just the fact of having a performer that you worked with three, four, five years ago just send you a text to let you know how they're doing means so much to me. Probably more than they think it does. And they, they probably just send it without even thinking about it. But that's it's huge. And so I'll just give you two examples. So one of which... Um, went through a huge period of trauma within the organisation. So ruptured his ACL, came back from the ACL rupture, re-ruptured his ACL, um, his MCL, uh, tore his meniscus and had to have around 30% of the cartilage in his knee removed. Um, didn't Was actually released from the club before he completed his rehab um, at the age of 18. We managed to get him through his functional skills, which is the equivalent of GCSEs, um, because he didn't pass any of his GCSEs. Um, so he he almost had nothing other than those functional skills qualifications. He had no idea what he wanted to be. He left the environment broken, and he left the environment. It coincided with me leaving the environment too, which was mm. 
really difficult for me in that I didn't know where he was going to go. His whole sports science and medical team had changed in the six months leading up to um, him leaving the environment. So he was working with new physios. He was working with new sports scientists. He knew that his contract wasn't going to be um, renewed. So he knew that it was time pressured for him to get back into a place where he knew he'd never play football competitively again, but to a place where he could at least be athletic and go for a jog or go for a run or able to play. As he said, I want to just be able to play football in the garden with a kid when I have a son or when I have a daughter. That's all I want now from this club. And he'd come into the club with the ambition of becoming a professional footballer. So Mm. for me, when he left, I continued to offer support um, for a little while and encouraged him to pursue perhaps a coaching career or something similar and I got a text from him. Um, it was probably two to three years after I finished working with him. And it was just simply like a hi, Fran. Um, just want to let you know, I've got my first job coaching in the community with a really popular or a really high profile professional football club, which I won't say. And then it, it just said after that, full stop, thanks for everything. And then like a football emoji and a thumbs up. And it was nothing more than that. But I guess just to know that he'd navigated his way to a new opportunity, to something that he wanted to do, he'd finally got there in the end, was huge for me um, and was really reassuring. And I guess the only the other option um, that I'll give you is one player who was a really educated young player um, who wanted to pursue different pathway to the sports science BTEC that players were allowed. He was released at the age of 18, um, went on to play part-time, completed an undergraduate degree in sports business, completed a master's degree, and is actually now doing um, some form of sports media and journalism on young players' pathway and the need to support young players in developing dual careers or developing alternative sources of meaning outside of just becoming a professional footballer and he draws upon his own experiences and again for me that's hugely rewarding to see just that he will look back on that journey and although it's one of pain and one of sorrow and one of perhaps rejection he's using that platform now and he's using some of the things that he wasn't able to do to shape the experiences of others based on probably a lot of the conversations that me and him had during that two years when he was a youth scholar. So although both of which are really sad stories when you think about it and the experiences they've had are incredibly traumatic and negatively shaped their well-being for a long time, to see now, like five, six years on, that they're both thriving is, yeah, me. it, it sounds really cringy, but actually does mean the world to me. Yeah, thank you for sharing the stories. I. I think it's so important to be able to really like hear those stories about what happens after that because quite often it's like you know when when the players are deselected then they are gone and you know what happens to them. But yeah, those ones that we don't know, I guess that maybe that the outcome may be very different in that they may have experienced a period of mental ill health. They I don't know where they'll be working, what they'll be doing. So I can only give those two stories because they're two players that are frequently in touch with me but it's Mm. yeah the unknown is slightly concerning and I think we should do something at governing body level to track these players and their journey longitudinally yeah yeah absolutely and for researchers to do work on on understanding that that 
much better as well. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think I've taken enough of your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I had the we had the pleasure to work together and I I enjoyed it immensely, but even like after having a lot of conversations before I I again learned a lot and yeah, it's it's really lovely to hear about all those <laughs> meaningful things that you shared as well uh in addition to the dark sides that that we started out with so yeah thank you so much for the conversation thank you for giving me the opportunity it's been really lovely to chat to you thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.